Rewire News shares the stories of women who say their abortions were just beautiful, revealing a key truth about language and its misuse. Abortion serviles masquerading as politicians in Pennsylvania sue the Little Sisters of the Poor again, attempting to force them into covering contraceptives and abortifacients in their health plans. We will examine why the left hates religious liberty and what this case reveals they really want. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. Welcome to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're enjoying this time and making the best of it with your family during this shutdown. And I certainly hope we're back to normal so that you can begin and all of us can begin adequately supporting our families and providing for them once again. Well, if you have been listening to the show uh, for any length of time and you've enjoyed it, please go ahead and give us a rating and review. That actually really helps us. Uh, we're an up and coming pro-life show that's helping young people and Christian individuals, families and pro-life individuals defend life in the public square and be a voice for the unborn. Help us reach more people by giving us a rating and review and let us know what you think. So the trash heap of a website, Rewire News, which I do not recommend you tell your <laughs> your young children about, certainly if they are in their pubescent years, publishes a story sharing the stories of women about how their abortions were just such a beautiful experience for them. And Rewire News is just a, is a complete uh, echo chamber of abortion ideology. It's just a bunch of abortion activists. Um, who write about how horrible America is and how it would be so much better if we could kill our babies and foot it with the taxpayers' dollars. And so we've come a long way, haven't we, from saying that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. It should be, it's a difficult, but, you know, it's a personal decision that should be protected. And we have now arrived at the age of hashtag shout your abortion and abortion is beautiful. Why is this? Why have we seen this massive shift from a little bit of an admission by the left that Abortion is unfortunate. Abortion does entail a moral component to it. Sure, maybe the rights of the woman trump the rights of the child, um, and it is a child, but we still need to protect those rights. There was at least an acknowledgement that abortion was not the same as having a polyp removed or your appendix. And now we're encouraged to shout and celebrate our abortions. And there's this movement of people now who call themselves abortion storytellers um, who, who basically make a living off of writing and sharing about how wonderful and transformative it was for them to kill their child. Well, I think with advancements in embryology and ultrasonography technology, the humanity of the baby in the womb and the inhumanity of abortion is more clear to the public than ever before. So that which was self-evident to all of us who love truth, namely that abortion kills an innocent human being, has become more obvious and self-evident to more Americans who can see the child because of our medical advancements in technology. Well, a movement in industry that profits off of the killing of the unborn, that more and more Americans are now recognizing as children and human beings with rights, must either fade into obscurity or double down, stick their head in the sand and insist it's not a baby. Abortion is healthcare. Abortion is reproductive justice and abortion is beautiful. A movement like that is either going to fade into obscurity, given the difficulty of them to make their case when confronted with the overwhelming biological and scientific evidence that it's a baby or they're going to have to double down. 
and resort to their euphemistic doublespeak that describes abortion as something other than it really is. So if you can describe abortion as beautiful and abortion as freedom and abortion as women's equality, that enables them to fight back in these abortion wars. And we'll get get to the importance of language and the words that the abortion rights movement uses in just a minute. But I want to read to you a little bit of the stories that these women share from this article. So it's entitled Five People Share Why Their Abortion Was Beautiful by Paige Alexandria on May 7th. And I think we've covered a piece of Paige Alexandria's before from from Rewire News. She herself has had an abortion and she starts this article sharing about how her abortion was beautiful and how it enabled her to paint the tapestry of her life that she wanted because she wasn't burdened with the financial difficulty of a child that she probably consensually created in the first place. And then she goes on to share the stories of five different women. And here's just some snippets of the stories that they include in this article. This woman says, my first abortion was a medical abortion. I was nervous about the process, but the clinic staff were kind and supportive and let me take my time. I took some pills at the clinic and brought more pills home. I cuddled up with blankets and a cat on the couch and watched music documentaries while waiting for the second round of pills to work. They did. I passed a small amount of blood and tissue into the toilet. I felt so relieved it was beautiful. Well, that tissue was your child, a human being that you killed um, while watching Netflix. My second abortion was a procedural abortion. I remember drifting off to sleep in the feet holders and then waking up once it was over. I didn't feel any of it. The clinic staff gave me soda to drink and let me rest for a bit. I remember walking out of the clinic and into the sunshine, feeling elated and relieved once more. I felt overwhelmingly free. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. Another woman goes on and says, I want others to know that there's a wide range of experiences that people have. And even in circumstances that are difficult, abortion can still be beautiful. And then another woman shares her story after her and her husband find out that their baby was diagnosed with trisomy 13, meaning that the baby was going to be very unlikely to survive any more than probably a couple weeks after birth. Of course, the compassionate decision according to the pro-life position, would be to carry that baby to term, to give them life, and to spend as much time you have with them, not intentionally killing them in the womb. But she says, after searching our hearts and soul and crying a river of tears, my husband and I decided the most compassionate and loving thing we could do as parents would be to end the pregnancy. Well, that is some mental gymnastics right there. The most compassionate and loving thing you can do to a child is to kill them. Obviously, that's what ending the pregnancy means. Even though I had an abortion, it was an act of love. And my son was still welcomed into the world with loving arms. And he only knew the love, warmth, and security of his mother. Well, the child you delivered, man, was a dead child who was murdered at your dime by a hitman that you paid. So no, they were not delivered into the loving arms of their mother. And certainly they did not only know the love, warmth and security of their mother, because the last thing they knew was the murder arranged by their mother. But this is the pitch now that abortion is beautiful because it's freeing, because it frees you from the shackles of financial responsibility and parenthood or of inconvenient children that might be difficult to provide for and raise. So abortion is beautiful. Well, if abortion is beautiful, then here's what I recommend. If abortion is such a beautiful, freeing thing, 
such that we should share the stories of women online so other people can experience how beautiful abortion is, then the pro-choice movement should commit themselves to lobby for legislation that requires every surgical abortion to be an ultrasound guided abortion that the pregnant woman has to look at. If abortion is so flipping beautiful, why shouldn't we be encouraging or legislating women to view that act, that procedure in progress, if it's so beautiful. That way she can watch the beauty of the forceps as they grab the skull of her unborn blob of tissue and crush it, followed by the additional limb dismemberment and rearrangement of the dead baby and pieces on the table to make sure that none of the babies are left in mom's uterus. If abortion is so beautiful, then why aren't you why aren't you supporting women viewing that abortion procedure? And why are you so opposed to pro-lifers who advocate for ultrasound laws that require women to get an ultrasound and see their baby before they kill it. Why do you oppose the pro-lifers practice of holding up graphic abortion imagery in the public square? Because abortion is beautiful, right? If it is, then don't hide it under a bushel. Don't be selfish. Share that art with everyone. Share that beauty with everyone. Don't hold those pearls to your chest. Throw them to the pigs. Let everyone see the beauty that abortion is and was for you. But the pro-choice movement does everything in their power, don't they? To hide both the reality of the child in the womb and the horror of what abortion does to that child. You remember last year, the ACLU sued the state of Kentucky over their bill entitled the Ultrasound Informed Consent Act, which would have required women to get an ultrasound. And for the doctor to show her the baby on the ultrasound and describe the anatomy that they're seeing in the age of the child. The ACLU sued the state of Kentucky because of that, and they called it extreme political interference in the doctor-patient relationship and, quote, deeply unethical. Deeply unethical, if abortion is beautiful, then not only is it ethical, but we should be encouraging people to view abortion. And it certainly wouldn't be political interference in the doctor-patient relationship. And of course, they obscure the reality of dismemberment abortions by calling it what? We will gently suction out the contents of the uterus. And they describe abortion pills as a slightly heavier period. They resort to euphemisms to describe abortion. But if abortion is beautiful, then let's bring it on full force. Let's look at it. Let's welcome the reality of that beautiful, beautiful procedure into the lives of pregnant women contemplating that beautiful procedure. So why do they hide the beauty of the very procedure that they call beautiful? Well, to answer that question, we must turn to a key truth about language and its use and misuse. But first, we're offering a new feature here at Unaborted. Starting soon, we'll be taking your questions on the show, anything related to abortion, to politics, to the culture, to the church, to faith and family. And uh, we'll go through a couple of those each episode. So to get your questions answered, simply email your questions to unaborted at sethgruber.com. That is unaborted at sethgruber.com. And we'll be right back with a whole lot more. Welcome back to Unaborted. So why does the pro-abortion movement and industry hide the reality of the very procedure they are now calling beautiful and asking others to shout about and proclaim? Because when reality meets fantasy, most people will recognize reality as truth. As I'm fond of saying, reality tends to be self-evident to those who are lovers of truth. Reality has a tendency of reasserting itself in our lives and demanding attention. When presented with the unvarnished truth and unvarnished falsity, the common man will recognize the lie for what it is. 
But the pro-abortion movement can't afford to present the unvarnished version of its actions and reproductive health care services, or else they will lose their cultural influence and ability to turn a profit off of the killing of babies because the reality of abortion is too ghoulish and too disturbing. And when it's portrayed and seen in the public square, it's typically rejected. So they must dress themselves up in euphemisms and doublespeak in order to hide, either visually or linguistically, the reality of the horrors that they perpetrate against children in the womb. And George Orwell understood the danger and misuse of the English language better than most. In his 1943 uh, article entitled, or essay entitled, Politics in the English Language, he wrote that political language has to consist largely of euphemism, question-begging, and sheer cloudy vagueness. Such phraseology is needed if one wants to name things without calling up mental pictures of them. He goes on to say political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give the appearance of solidity to pure wind, which is a perfect example of who the pro-abortion movement is and what they do. They use euphemisms to obscure the reality of what they do. They refer to abortion as abortion and reproductive health care to name the things that they do without calling up mental pictures of them. The pro-abortion movement cannot actually portray the images of abortion without completely destroying the fantasy that they've created. Images like these would completely puncture their fantasy and reveal the man behind the curtain. And so their language is used to make lies sound truthful, murder respectable, which is exactly what they do, and to give the appearance of solidity to pure wind arguments based on a fantasy world. But the pro-abortion movement and the abortion industry understands the power of words, and the left more broadly is mass are masters at utilizing very specific words to describe very specific things to obscure reality in favor of ideology and in propaganda. Control words and the implementation of those words in the culture, and you will control the culture. And this is because words have meanings. Words are not just combinations of letters. Words actually have meanings and definitions, and they shape how we think about ideas. They shape how we think about the world around us. They color the way that we see the world. And ideas have consequences. So if you're using bad words and and redefining words to fit your political preferences, to describe ideas, then those consequences can be dire Indeed, if the words we use don't accurately describe reality, then our ideas about ourselves, freedom, life, and liberty will be warped. And if we're not careful, we'll end up believing a fantasy. And that fantasy may sound enticing to many. It may sound enticing that abortion is freedom, that abortion enables women to be equal with men, that abortion enables women to pursue their education and their career, that abortion enables women to accomplish everything a man can because they're not being burdened by familial responsibilities. Abortion is feminism. All these things might sound enticing to the masses, but in the end, it leads to death because it is a fantasy that uses language to describe some of the most horrific things you could imagine, the killing of an innocent baby, of an innocent human being, 
and describes it as beautiful, freeing, and empowering. This euphemistic political language obscures the reality, and in the end, it leads to death. And I was thinking recently of the warning to stay away from the adulterous woman in Proverbs 5 as a great explanation of the abortion industry and the pro-abortion movement. A man is teaching his son timeless truths, particularly as it pertains to sexuality and the adulterous woman. And he says, for the lips of an immoral woman are as sweet as honey and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as poison, as dangerous as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave, for she cares nothing about the path to life. (laughs) That's a great explanation of the pro-abortion movement and the abortion industry that use words that are as sweet as honey and smooth as oil to deceive those who have not been trained to think critically about the ideas they espouse so that they can garner up support for a movement that kills human beings in the womb. Their feet go down to death and to the grave because they don't care about the path of life. They don't care about the lives of the human beings that they take in order to turn a prophet. It's very important for us to use the appropriate words that accurately describe reality and not a fantasy. Words that accurately describe what actually happens in an abortion. And I often get people very frustrated and mad at me because of the language that I use on the topic of abortion. It's too intense, Seth. It's too aggressive. That's so bombastic. You're turning people off from your message. Can you just use some less controversial words that won't make people tune you out? No, because I will have nothing to do with the fantasy reality that's been invented by the left that calls vice virtue good evil and evil good, that calls abortion reproductive health care and says that that is beautiful and freeing. Because I refuse to allow, allow the left to get away with describing abortion with flowery euphemistic words that has had uncalculable damage on generations of individuals because words have meanings and words communicate ideas and ideas have consequences. Unfortunately, bad ideas have victims and there is hardly a worse bad idea than the idea that the dismemberment of a baby in their mother's womb is reproductive health care. So we should call abortion for what it is, genocide, feticide, murder, dismemberment, slaughter, paying a hitman to kill your child. This accurately describes what abortion is and does. The photos I just showed you accurately describe, accurately show what abortion does, and these words mirror that horrific reality. Pro-life individuals, conservatives, and the culture at large that believes in truth and wants to align their lives with truth have to use words that accurately describe reality because we've allowed the left to win for too long by getting away with using less than accurate terms to describe the horrors of what they really do. Well, next we're going to talk about uh, Pennsylvania, unfortunately, suing the Little Sisters of the Poor again, trying to force them and co-opt them into covering and providing contraceptives and potentially abortifacient contraceptive drugs in their healthcare plans. But first, if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the abortion wars, then head on over to patreon.com slash unaborted to become a patron of the show. That's just how you help us create more content. We'd love 
love to move to two episodes a week. We'd love to start doing street interviews with people, engaging with people out in the public square on issues relating to life and liberty, and providing you with more content for your children, for your friends, and for yourself to defend life and be a voice for the unborn in this election year and in a very propitious moment for the battle over the lives of unborn children. You know, Greg Cunningham, a longtime pro-life leader, once said that there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. That's because killing babies is very profitable while saving them is very costly. That is a tragic reality of the circumstance that we find ourselves in today. The pro-abortion movement lines their pockets with gobs of cash from the procedure that kills innocent human beings. While the pro-life movement fundraises endlessly to spend money to save lives. And you can help us do that by playing a particular and important role to help me reach young people, Christian leaders, and religious pro-lifers to equip them to defend life and gently persuading and encouraging those who are pro-choice to reconsider their position by examining evidence they have not seen or heard before. So if you want to help support this show, head on over to patreon.com slash unaborted to become a patron of the show. And we'll be right back with a whole lot more. Welcome back to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Well, if you're not as tuned in to the events in the pro-life movement as perhaps I or others are, I want to give you a case in point as to how much the pro-abortion movement and more broadly the left hates you if you're a religious person, hates religious people for seeking to exercise their religious freedoms that are natural rights guaranteed and protected by the Constitution. So you may not recall this if you're a younger listener to my show, but in 2012, President Obama's Affordable Care Act required all employers to provide contraceptive and potentially abortifacients drugs in their healthcare plans or pay millions of dollars in fees if they refused. Well, obviously, this went up through the courts, and in 2016, the Supreme Court unanimously requested that the federal government and Little Sisters of the, of the Poor come to an agreement. So Little Sisters of the Poor is this Catholic uh, religious order that cares for the elderly, that cares for homeless people, that provides them housing, and of course, shares the gospel. Wonderful individuals doing wonderful work that most of us don't do, and certainly not full-time. And so uh, a uh, they, they sued the uh, Obama administration, it went up through the courts, and while the Supreme Court actually didn't hear the case in 2016, they were forcing the federal government and Little Sisters of the Poor to come to an agreement, because uh, the Supreme Court didn't really want to take up the case at the time. Well, once Donald Trump took office, his administration exempted employers with religious or moral objections to the contraceptive mandate from having to comply with it. And this is one of the biggest victories of the Trump administration and something that they ushered in shortly after his um, election um, and after, shortly after he was sworn in. Through the Health and Human Services Department, they created a conscious protections department to ensure that people with religious and moral objections to abortifacients, to contraceptives, wouldn't have to be co-opted into performing abortions against their religiously held beliefs or for paying or for providing contraceptives or abortifacients in their health care plans. All completely common sense stuff that is obviously protected under religious freedoms. Well, Pennsylvania and New Jersey have decided to sue the Little Sisters of the Poor again. And the Supreme Court began hearing oral arguments on Wednesday, May 6th, just last week. So the Supreme Court's decision is very important in this case, because it will determine whether or not religious orders and religious colleges, by the way, will have to pay for birth control, including possible abortion-inducing drugs. Because 
when Obama's Affordable Care Act was passed, it didn't just include contraceptives, meaning like condoms and diaphragms, right? Like things that are less controversial, but it also included things that could be potentially abortifacient, abortion-inducing drugs, such as Ella and Plan B, things that are taken to prevent pregnancy, but sometimes fail to do so. And so if you get pregnant, those drugs can prevent the implantation of a human being who has already come into existence and therefore cause an early abortion. Pro-lifers should have nothing to do with that type of medication. And of course, Catholics are opposed to all forms of contraceptives. So Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and these political operatives masquerading or abortion serviles masquerading as politicians have decided, no, we really need to force these Catholic nuns who care for elderly homeless people to provide possibly abortion-inducing drugs and contraceptives against their religious beliefs and their health care plans to other Catholics against the position of the Catholic Church. So that's what the pro-abortion movement thinks of you as religious people. Well, the Washington Examiner on May 6th by Nicholas Rowan uh, covered a little bit of the updates on what's going on. He says the arguments presented Wednesday deal with a lawsuit from the states of Pennsylvania and New Jersey pushing back against an executive order from President Trump and a statement from Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, which exempts the religious order, as well as many other faith-based institutions, from participating in the Obamacare contraception mandate. Attorney Paul Clement, arguing for the Little Sisters of the Poor, said that if the case is decided against them, they will not still not they still will not offer contraception because it is quote inconsistent with their faith there is nothing they can do to allow them to come into compliance with the mandate he said pennsylvania chief deputy attorney general michael fisher told the court that while the state does not object to the religious order's opposition to the mandate it believes that the trump administration's intervention and the hhs exemptions are too broad and quote will result in women losing coverage for services which the Affordable Care Act deemed as essential health care. There's the line right there, right? So two concerns. One, they're saying that access to contraceptives through your health care is essential, that that's a right. And secondly, that, that thanks to the Trump administration, women are going to lose coverage for contraceptives that the left deems are human rights. <laughs> so th that's the line right there. That's what they're concerned about. And Helen Alvary, she wrote a piece called The Endless War on the Little Sisters of the Poor at the Wall Street Journal on May 5th, debunking this claim that thousands or millions of women will lose coverage for their contraceptives because of the Trump administration. She debunks this claim uh, very quickly. She says, those who oppose the Little Sisters of the Poor still can't identify one woman who can't get contraceptives without help from Catholic nuns. The Little Sisters have never subsidized a single birth control pill or inner uterine device. They have never covered contraceptives in their health plan. So should the court rule in their favor in Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania, no woman would lose coverage. The states claim, contrary to the federal government's own admissions, that the Little Sisters' religious beliefs are harming women who can't get contraception. But in nearly a decade since the Affordable Care Act was passed, states have not identified a woman who lacks coverage under the current religious exemption or any other exemption. Do the under, under, uh, uh, underserved women the states claim to defend exist? Or is it all a political ploy to bring down religious exemptions and the faith-based ministries that they rely on? <laughs> Very good question. So the entire argument that the opposition to the Little Sisters of the Poor is making 
is that by allowing them to practice religious freedom by not paying for or providing contraceptives and abortifacients, women all over the country are losing coverage for services, which the Affordable Care Act deemed as essential health care. And Helen Alvary at The Wall Street Journal says that this is a lie and nobody has been il- able to illustrate a single woman in a decade who was uh, lacking coverage under the current religious exemption. So what is this really about? Well, it's about two things. It's about the left's hatred of religious liberty, and it's about their goal of ideological uniformity. So firstly, why does, why does the left hate religious liberty? Why are they such opponents and enemies of religious liberty? The left hates religious liberty because the values and traditions of religious people in America run counter to nearly every other value of leftism. So there is a constant threat to the America that the left wishes to build by typically religious conservatives who hold values and traditions that the left hates and have been attacking for decades, such as that life begins at conception, and that's a natural right to not be killed from the moment that you're a human being, such that every child deserves a mother and father, and ideally a married mother and father in the same home, such as that... uh, that we have a right to religious freedom, that parents have a right to parent their children how they see fit without the intrusion of the government pushing a secular liberalism and view on the family. The left hates all of these things. And the left fears religious people of influence who would seek to enshrine in law the principles and values of that religion. The ironic part, of course, is that the left does the same thing. Leftism is a religion with a structured view of the world, of humanity, and of the human condition. And they seek to enshrine in law the values of secular humanism, which could be argued is the religion of the left. So they seek to enshrine in law their own religious precepts, namely secular humanism, just as religious people seek to do the same. But they hate religious liberty because of the freedom and therefore the power that it gives religious individuals in our country to enshrine in law the principles and values of that religion which leftism hates. Secondly, this lawsuit is about ideological uniformity. The left wants everyone to look identical. And if you don't believe what they believe in and you're not willing to stand behind the rights that they perceive are essential rights— then they will attack you and seek to force you into submission. So while they portray their hatred of religious liberty, obviously in suing Catholic nuns who want to run their charity and religious order according to their religious beliefs, the pro-abortion movement simultaneously seeks to create that which they've always despised, which is a theocracy. The left hates a theocracy. They hate that there were countries that at one time were run by religious people and that that religion was the state religion. The left hates that. They hate and fear a theocracy, a state religion run by religious people. Except in this case, it's a leftist theocracy that demands uniformity to leftist values in the service of their God themselves. <laughs> so while they claim to hate religious liberty, And while they claim to fear the implementation of a religion by the state, 
They're doing the same thing with leftism, which is itself a religion, and they're seeking to force in line everyone else according to their religious secular views on sexuality and on humanity. And Alexandra DeSantis at National Review points this out. She makes this point on May 5th. She says, these lawsuits seek with pseudo-religious fervor to punish believers and drive conscience from the public square. Their aim is to uniformly enforce the progressive creed that contraception is health care and what's more, that subsidized contraception is a woman's right. At the root of these lawsuits is the sinister belief that contraception funded by one's employer regardless and guaranteed by the state is a requirement of freedom. It is little surprise that such a worldview seeks to trample on the rights of those with religious or moral beliefs that contradict this secular dogma. <laughs> so if your religious beliefs contradict secular humanism, which is the religion of the left, then they will seek to trot on you until you look just like them. Ideological uniformity is the goal of the left. So in short, according to the left, Catholic religious nuns are abusing religious freedom by requesting the freedom to not pay for and provide contraceptives that violate their beliefs. But the left isn't violating religious freedom by attempting to force a secular humanistic view of sexual libertinism onto Catholic nuns with religious fervor. <laughs> so if Catholics seek to appeal to religious freedom to opt out of being forced to provide contraceptives that the Catholic Church disagrees with, that's wrong and that's an abusement of religious freedom. But if the left seeks to force their religiously, their secular religion and enforce it through law onto Catholics, then that's not an abuse of religious freedom. Ridiculous. And this gets to a key difference between the left and the right, between conservatives and between the left who basically hate our country and hate the founding ideals found in natural rights. That difference is that the right will only seek to enforce values on others that coincide with natural rights. Broadly speaking, conservatives typically will only seek to enforce through law values that coincide with natural rights. For example, here's what I mean by this. Pro-lifers won't seek to enforce their views on human sexuality, right? We don't attempt to use the law to ban premarital sex. We're not seeking to enforce our view of human sexuality through the law on the rest of Americans. Catholics don't attempt to ban the purchase of condoms, even though the Catholic Church is opposed to the use of condoms. We're not enforcing our view of human sexuality. But we will try to use the law to ban the killing of a human being that is the product of sex. Because abortion violates the most fundamental natural right, the right to life, which we universally have that springs from our humanity and is, of course, guaranteed by our creator. Contrastively, the left will almost always seek to enforce their view of human sexuality on everyone else. They will insist that sexual rights include anything from abortion and contraception footed by the taxpayer – to gender affirmation surgeries for minors against the parent's will, also footed by the taxpayer. So they will violate natural rights by, for, by enforcing their view of human sexuality on others and, of course, violating religious freedoms in doing so. 
But conservatives don't seek to do that. We seek to guarantee natural rights. And if that means that I've taken away your perceived right to kill your own unborn child, then so be it. Because I haven't violated any of your natural rights and I'm not seeking to enforce through law my own views on human sexuality. It's a key difference between the left and the right. But it's ironic, isn't it, that the left accuses pro-lifers and religious conservatives of religious fundamentalism. Ooh, we can't, we can't allow these religious fundamentalists to create a theocracy where they make Christianity the state religion and go into people's bedrooms and make sure they don't have premarital sex. This is their fear. This is what they, this is their critique, their accusation on pro-lifers and religious conservatives. But we're simply seeking to protect natural rights, namely the right to life. While simultaneously, while simultaneously though, the left um, is exercising some of the worst examples of religious fundamentalism. <laughs> they are uniformly enforcing the progressive creed that if the left considers something a right, then they have the right to demand that you provide and pay for that right. Now, where does this right come from? It comes from their own fantasy kingdom that they have invented. It's not a natural right. It doesn't spring from our humanity. There's nothing about being a human being that gives you the right to force me to pay for your abortion or your contraceptive so you can have responsibility-free sex. That's not a natural human right. But as, as soon as the left says that that's a natural human right, then they will trod over your natural right to oppose, and your religious freedom to oppose until you look just like them, until their ideology is, is until everyone conforms and looks just like their ideology. And the left will continue to do this. So we cannot give a step. We have to fight back at every single moment because the lives of unborn children are at risk and the freedoms of the posterity of our nation, your children, are at risk. That's what this lawsuit really means. It's not about ensuring that women don't lose access to essential health care covered in their health insurance plans. It's about attacking the idea of religious freedom from those that the left hates because they pose a significant threat to the type of America that the left wants to create, and it's about ideological uniformity. And so they're going to use words, and they're going to use euphemisms to push a certain narrative about sexual libertinism and sexual rights that will coincidentally include the right to abortion, the right to abortifacients, and the right to have us pay for their abortions and their contraception. That's something we cannot put up with for the sake of America, for the sake of freedom, and for the sake of the lives of unborn children. Well, thanks for joining me today. Head on over to iTunes and YouTube and Spotify. Give the show a rating and review. Let us know what you think. It really helps. Share it with a friend. Let them know and see what they think. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, check out my speaking schedule, and get some training videos or reach out to me if you want to book me for a speaking event. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. Unaborted.